The following audio is from Life Centre Church. For more information, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. So uh, next month is an exciting month uh, for, for people who follow the royal family. Next month on the 6th of May, King Charles III is going to be getting his coronation day. If you didn't know the date, save it. He, on that kind of event, he'll be getting his crown bestowed upon his head, and he'll have all these nice regal services. There's going to be a really fancy carriage. He's going to make oaths, and people are going to say lots of things, and bow knees before him, and everything like that. Uh, we're going to see a lot of big pomp and wealth. And it's a very exciting time if you like that. In fact, I've heard there's a few viewing parties around, so if that intrigues you, I definitely would hit it up. My wife may or may not be hosting one, um, just, just letting you know. So if you're interested, come see me after as well. Uh, but this month, this May event on the, uh, on the 6th of May will forever be overshadowed by what happened last week on Easter Sunday. That coronation event, as some theologian call it. That day where Jesus is, is said to have been bestowed upon with power and authority. Uh, Philippians chapter 2 puts it this way, after Jesus kind of dying on the cross, it says this, that God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him a name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Uh, And we see that happening after this resurrection. That's quite a position, isn't it? Having all powers and authorities bound before you. Even our new King Charles, in his ceremony, in the coronation, will actually do a bit of of that kind of bowing before him in in a similar way. So the question that is begged from a coronation event and of a new king is, what kind of king is this king? What kind of king is he like? From the book of Matthew, I'm told you guys have been tracking through the book of Matthew and be able to see what this Jesus is like, and you've seen what he's like up to the point of his death and his resurrection last Sunday. But what about after that? When he's bestowed upon this power and authority as a new coronated king with great authority? We all know that a time and position, to kind of time and uh, position, tells us greatly about a person's character. I've been reading in Chronicles lately. I don't know if you've ever taken the time to read it. It's a fantastic book in the Bible, and I've been confronted by King Joash lately. King Joash started off really well, but then time told us that he started off well, but by the end of it, it actually all fell to pieces. And he was killed by his own people. He showed his true colour after time. So what about this Jesus? What is he going to be like now and and forevermore? What's he going to be like? What kind of king is he like? And the other question we we ask around a coronation is, what does that mean for me? I'll say I have been wondering what it's going to be like with uh, King Charles III and his coronation. Will the UK become more Christian than it was before or less? Will our Commonwealth be for the better or for the worse? What decisions will King Charles do that will impact me, and what will he influence that will impact me? Because we can't escape the the grips of our monarch, can we? They're, They're over everything, they're over our lands. And the same is for Jesus. What is he like as this newly coronated king of the universe, and what does that authority mean for me? Well, today in Matthew 28, uh, 16 to 20, we're going to catch a glimpse of this King Jesus uh, to see what he's like. And what we're going to see is this, that King Jesus is a king on mission, which means uh, we are his subjects 
And we as a subjects are on mission, and therefore we can be on that mission as well. And that's what we're going to be looking at today. So what we're going to do, first up, we're going to explore Matthew 28, 16, 20. We're going to pull that apart, have a, seat, have a little look for the diamonds in that passage. And then we're going to spend some time as well practically applying that and seeing how we can do that in our everyday life. So turn to Matthew 28, 16 to 20, if you haven't already on your Bibles, and I'll set the scene for you today. Uh, Jesus is alive, is the scene at the end of Matthew 28. He was killed days prior on a cross on Good Friday, but on Easter Sunday, he bursts forth and everything is different. The women who are kind of often ministering to Jesus go to the tomb to try to find out where he is and what he's, what, what, what the kind of spice, put spices on him and everything like that. And what they found was the tomb was empty. And they encountered an angel there telling them go, what had happened, that he was alive, uh, and that the group go, they tell them to go to the point where Jesus said to go, and, uh, and that, uh, sorry, they told him to go to the point that Jesus said to go in Galilee uh, and to meet Jesus there. And so we come across to the scene at the end of Matthew where Jesus' 11 disciples are and are most likely an undisclosed amount of other people. And at this mountain that Jesus appointed them, as we see in verse 16, Jesus comes to them and he says this, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. This uh, is what we read in Philippians 2 earlier. The idea is now that at this resurrection, that Jesus seems to have been kind of coronated as this king, bestowed with power and authority. It's not that he didn't have power and authority before. As we, often we read in the Gospels, we read of him calming storms, don't we? Healing the sick. Even at the beginning of the Matthew's Gospel, we find out he's a, he's a king of some sort. Rather, what this seems to me, this kind of idea of being uh, bestowed or given authority and power is that his dominion and his scope of his reign has seemed to increase. It's gone universal. In Daniel chapter 7, in the Old Testament, uh, it's, it's kind of helpful to this background. Uh, you see, Jesus often in, the, in Matthew's Gospel and all through the Gospels, he calls himself a son of man. It doesn't mean that he was necessarily saying, I'm just a bloke or a human. He was actually making a deliberate reference to Daniel chapter 7. In Daniel chapter 7, we read this. And behold... With the clouds of heaven, in verse 13 and 14, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, uh, and that peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. The Jews in Jesus' day were, were waiting for a king like this, one with this dominion and power. They were waiting for a king like David, for sure, of the Davidic line, but some of them were waiting for this kind of cosmic king, of a bigger, bigger throne, bigger scope. And so when Jesus came, he started saying he was this son of man, he was this king, and he would be given power and authority. And he said that this has happened here in Matthew 28, where he claims this in similar language. Not just a king of the Jews, but a king of all things. Now, if this was a movie, right, and someone has just got all the power and authority of the land, this would be the time we start getting a bit worried, yeah? In Star Wars, Chancellor Palpatine, when he ended up having control of the Senate, we were really worried, weren't we? If you're not a Star Wars fan, it's okay. I've got other references. Hunger Games. Everybody understands Hunger Games, right? When Coin started finally pulling herself interim president of Pan Am, and we started going, oh no, same authority and power as before we started. 
recoiling. Oh, history is going to repeat, repeat itself. Okay, I've got a few blank faces. What about this one? In Lion King. Okay, everybody's watched Lion King, yeah? When Scar takes pride rock, we cried a little bit, didn't we? Yeah, when he had that power and authority, we start to tremble because power, they say, corrupts, doesn't it? But when people haven't met Jesus, though, have they? What Jesus said after being this promised king from the Old Testament, he says this, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. That's a different message from power and corruption, isn't it? He desires, as King Jesus desires, that disciples are made across the world, all nations. A disciple being someone who listens to and obeys Jesus, someone who is friends with Jesus, someone who trusts Jesus, someone who has eternal light despite the judgment they deserve, according to John 3.16. And it's supposed to be a blessing to those around them. That's, that's the kind of people, that's the kind of world that Jesus wants filled with. So what that means for us is when Jesus ended up in this position of authority, someone who coronated, his newly coronated king, he didn't do his own selfish desires. He didn't pursue his own sinful abuse of power as we see so often in this world and as we see so often in the Old Testament. Rather, his authority led him to seek to bless the world through disciple-making. This is a type of king King Jesus is. He is on a mission for the good news, for the good of everyone in this world, everywhere. And that's what we see about this newly coronated King Jesus. In fact, his mission is an ongoing old mission. It's actually what God has been up to this entire time in the Bible, up to this point. Way back in Genesis 1.28, before sin came into the world and, and ruined creation, we read, it was, uh, we read it was God who charged Adam and Eve, and obviously their descendants too, to kind of fill the earth with people made in the image of God, to have people like Him all over the planet. Sin did come, though, as we know in Genesis, but that didn't stop God's plans of filling the earth with people like Him. In Genesis 12, verse 3, we read about God promising Abraham, this random bloke, he promised to bless him with numerous amounts of blessings, and on top of that, he would be a blessing to all the families of the earth. And they, all the other families of earth would be blessed through him. In Exodus 19, following this kind of logic, the descendants of Abraham, the Israelites, we read, are called a kingdom of priests, a priest to the nations, so they could bring a blessing to the earth with God's own teachings, being able to provide them for other people, and also the news about the atonement which they could have through the Old Testament sacrificial system. That was their role, to be priests to the nations. And it's here at Jesus' life being dead, resurrection, and now, while he's still on earth, he continues this mission as a coronated king, just like his father, just like God all the way up to now, by sending out his own disciples to make disciples, to bring about a blessing to the world that does not deserve it. Now, that is a good image of a king, isn't it? That's better than Scar from Lion King, that's for sure. That's the type of king we see in the post-resurrection Jesus, a king on mission. But the thing is, if this is the idea of this king, if this is what he is like, this is what this coronated king is like, when your king decides on something, that impacts you, doesn't it? If our king goes to war, well, we're going to be ending up going to war, won't we? If your king blesses another country, well, that would come out of your pocket, wouldn't it? 
And the same logic applies here for the word therefore in verse 19 in Matthew 28. Jesus' universal authority indicates a new stage of his mission. Before you can see in the Gospels, he was kind of focused on the Jews, but now he has his eyes set on the entire earth. And if he is the kind of king who is focused on blessing the earth and we are his subjects, well, that involves us too. And we can see that spelled out in verses 19 and 20 in Matthew 28, where we're commanded to go and make disciples and and teach and baptize as well. We are to be on mission as well. In fact, I would say this, because King Jesus is on mission, we are therefore and can be on mission. And the reason I say can be here is because we all know that mission that Jesus asks us to join and partake in of making disciples, of sharing faith, it's actually hard work, isn't it? He doesn't just involve being nice to people that you want to be nice to, does it? doesn't just involve speaking to people that you want to speak to, does it? it? No, it involves actually being nice to people who don't like us, speaking to people that we may not like us as well, and we might not even really like them, and tell them the message of the good news, which is a confronting message, isn't it? It even involves the word hell, which we don't really like to say too much. It, it talks about the good news of Jesus dying for the consequences of our sins through his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. That is not easy to show and tell the gospel. It's especially to those who we know, our family, our close friends. But that's why I think Matthew doesn't finish his gospel with a command. If you look at the end of Matthew 28 here, he actually finishes up on a promise. And the promise is this. It's a very subtle promise. It's something we kind of know, but it actually is really big and very important and worth mulling over. It's this. It says, And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This king with great authority over everything we know, who is in control of all things, who, as you read in Romans 8.28, is able to work all things together for good, this same king promised that he is with us always. Not sometimes, always, each day. Not just this week, not just this year, not just the last couple years, always, to the end of the age, end of history as we can perceive it. That's the promise. And so we can be on mission because King Jesus is on mission. He's got all the motivation we need. He's got all the power we need. He's got all the energy we need. He's got all the ability, the strength, the courage He's right there helping us to fulfill the task because he actually wants it done. King Jesus is on mission, so we are therefore on mission, and we can be on mission. And so this morning, I want you guys to take that truth. I want you to meditate over it. I want you to let that challenge some fears that you may have, some insecurities you may have. And I want you to meditate on the end of Matthew 28. And, uh, but because of this passage, though, we need to kind of move on, don't we? We need to actually look at the practical implications. Too often we talk about being on mission, 
and doing mission, sharing our faith, making disciples in that language, but we often don't look at the practicals of the how-to. So what I want to do this morning is I want to, I want to spend some time looking at that, not only encourage our hearts, but also encourage our hands. And what I've done is I've put together an acronym called LIGHT. Uh, and I've taken this from different people like uh, Timothy Keller and Sam Chan, the Australian evangelist. And I've, I've come up with five ordinary habits. And so they're very familiar habits. You probably do them already. But I've put them in a little acronym because preachers put things in acronyms, don't they? Uh, and I've put them in an acronym to kind of help us be the type of people who can live on mission. But before we, we get there, I want to clarify two things. I, uh, I define mission as this, showing the gospel and telling the gospel to the glory of God. Which means that I see the task of spreading faith uh, and making disciples actually involves speaking the gospel message itself alongside doing things like justice and mercy. They go hand in hand, show and tell, for good balance. And I think as we kind of go through these these five things, we'll understand why. Uh, And secondly, these habits that we have here are no ways for us to be people who make shallow friendships just to tell people the gospel. The Bible presents that sharing our faith and having friends is good, but it shouldn't be at the expense of a good relationship and chatting and actually loving and caring for people and not just becoming friends to evangelize. That's, that's not what the Bible tells us to do. It tells us to love deeply. So those are my two disclaimers before getting into this. So let's start with the first habit, which is L for listen. When Paul was on his missionary journeys, one of the disciples that Jesus sent out, He found himself in a place called Athens. You can read all about that in in Acts 17. And while he was there, he noticed the place was full of idols. And through a series of circumstances, he was kind of given the chance to actually speak publicly about Jesus to these people and about the resurrection, which is a very, very impressive situation to find himself. But notice what he says in the opening lines of this speech. Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious, For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What you therefore worship as known, this I proclaim to you. You see, Paul started uh, started his missionary journey to these people with a listening posture, getting an idea of their culture. From this, he determined that they weren't of a Jewish and a Christian background. And so you can see in this passage, he actually tailored how the gospel should be presented to them. He spoke about the unknowing God and used that as, a, as an inroad to talking about Jesus. What he did was listen. And we need to get into the habit of listening if we're to live a lifestyle that's going to impact our communities. Because when we listen, it's amazing what actually happens. Husbands know this. If we listen to our wives, oh, our relationship goes a lot better, doesn't it? And the same thing for other people. If you want to be a good friend, we listen. Listening is important to shape how we actually have conversations. It allows us to actually find out what people believe in, find out what their idols are, and be able to craft a gospel message, still true to the meaning, but in a meaningful way for them, for them to know and hear about this Jesus. We need to be a good listener, but not only because it helps us to understand and share the gospel, but also in how it impacts people. I was at the mechanics last year, and a bloke walks up to me and says, are you a minister? Now, I don't know what I was wearing that day or what vibes I was giving up, but anyway, that's what he said to me. I said, yes, I am. And he proceeds to tell me about his vision of God and what God is like. And so I listened. They're like, okay, I've been reading books. I need to listen. So I started listening. And I started trying to add a little bit into there to kind of build on the conversation 
And he just wouldn't let me. He just kept going on and on and on and on. And by the end of it, I really can't remember much of what he said, but I know how he made me feel. And the same thing is for us. We sometimes get so convinced that we want to share the gospel. It's one opportunity that we shove it down people's throats. We forget to listen and love by listening. Sam Chan, the Australian evangelist, puts it this way, that we should evangelize the same way we would like to be evangelized, which means giving people the time of day, making them feel heard. They will want to hear you. And when they don't, well, guess what? They'll stop listening. We need to get into a habit of listening, being engaged in conversation, actually making time for the conversation. There is a time for preaching, but barely is it one-on-one. We need to get in the habit of listening. L is for listen. And I is for integrity. In October 2022, McCrindle Research, an Australian research group, put out some data on the faith landscape of Australia. In their research, they concluded again some of the top negative perceptions people have about Christianity. You'll find a few on the screen, hopefully there. Um, Sadly, these, these perceptions are pretty well the same as last time they did this research and the time they did the research before and the time they did the research before. The massive and significant areas of negative influence on the perception of Christianity is church abuse, hypocrisy, judging others, religious wars, issues around money, and authoritarian... I can never say that one word. The last one there. Authoritarian style. I can't say it. Obviously, I'm not very authoritative, right? Can't even do it. Anyway. um, Now, while I'm sure you could kind of push back on the first six of these kind of things, uh, I'm sure we all know that this has a hint of truth because these types of behaviours have actually impacted us as Christians too. And it's actually been the reasons why we've left churches ourselves, haven't they? How many of us have left church due to abuse, hypocrisy, how people have handled money or due to their kind of controlling nature? Why would we assume it wouldn't be the same for non-Christians? Christian Christian behaviour is negatively impacting our mission, but it's not how things should be. In 1 Peter 2.12, Peter states this, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honourable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Whether we ourselves have done something wrong or not, Peter talks about the power of good deeds that can help change a person's mind, that can help a person glorify God and become a believer when Christ returns on that salvation on that final day. There is power in the testimony of our godliness, our integrity to our faith whether our walk matches our talk. A couple of years ago, I was at a wedding. And uh, if you're a young bloke at a wedding and you're there early, typically you get asked to do jobs, right? That's just what the behavior is. You're young, you can move things. And so I, was, I helped this person move a couple of things around. Uh, it's a very simple act, part of the normal kind of business. But in a conversation kind of ended there. However, I learned later on that this person learned that I was a Christian and that I was a pastor of no less, apparently. Uh, and in my simple act of generosity, this person had revealed this other person, they actually hadn't been to church for a while, they didn't really want to go to church and things like that. However, they said that they would go to church if I was there. I didn't do anything. I wasn't really that, I'm not that very strong, you can, you can see for yourselves. But she was keen to go to church, simple by my act of integrity, my act of doing good and loving and caring for her. 
This is why Sam Chan uh, calls for Christians in Australia to kind of become de facto chaplains in their neighbourhoods, in their communities, on, their, on the Sunshine Coast, right? Uh, to be around those and love and care for these people and listen to those around you in your, your circles. To be the person that people can turn to in times of need. To be known as generous people who bless other people. This is going to look different in different circumstances, different stages of life, obviously, but the call is, to be sa- is the same, to be godly in every aspect of our life, to have integrity, to bless others, uh, and change, hopefully, maybe that negative perception that we have in the community. I is for integrity. We need to live a life of integrity. And G is for the gospel, because we can't just behave good, can we? If Christian mission was all about doing good things, then we'd be nothing better than any old non-for-profit out there. And there are plenty of them, and often they do better than some Christian organizations. No, we have been told a gospel to tell, alongside good deeds to be done. We can't neglect one or the other. But in our culture, sharing the gospel, saying the words, the actual message itself can feel weird. It's easier, I would say, on the Sunshine Coast to be nice in Jesus' name rather than tell the gospel in Jesus' name. And I don't think I'm alone in that. But we can't shrink in fear because it is believing in the gospel itself, that good news message that gives salvation to those that desperately need to hear it, not our good behavior. Paul states this in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. The good news of Jesus' life and death and resurrection to save us from the just punishment we deserve by sinning against God, that is worth telling. That is what changes people's lives when they place their faith in this Jesus. That's what transforms hearts. That's what changes people's eternal destinies. That's why it's so important for us to kind of come to, to grips with this truth in our heart that King Jesus is on mission, so we are therefore and can be on mission ourselves because we need help to do the scary parts. To be effective people on mission in our communities, we need to be ready to share the gospel with boldness like we see in Acts, which means we need to realize that Jesus is right there with us. It also means that we need to know the gospel embrace the gospel, understand it, know how to articulate it and say it in convincing ways and loving and good ways. But in saying that, let's not make sharing the gospel message too overwhelming uh, than it needs to be. We need to remember that people are on a journey towards spiritual belief. Timothy Keller speaks about the idea that people often make lots of many decisions before they make a decision for Jesus, which means our role could simply be the person who is nice in Jesus' name. That could just simply be a part of our gig. That's great. It might be easier for some, maybe harder for some. But it could also be the person who finally has the opportunity to speak the gospel mission. We need message. We need to be able to be flexible in our role and be led by the Holy Spirit as we navigate that with each person come across. And the best way I think we can do that in our culture is through hospitality. H is for hospitality. I want you to, I'm going to set you guys a challenge In the New Testament, I want you to read through the New Testament and count how many times you can see people eating over a meal, catching up over dinner, stopping, drinking water, doing those kind of things, and having conversations and building relationships. It's everywhere in the New Testament. And that's because people are like cake. 
or onions, or ogres for Shrek fans out there. They have layers. Typically, according to Sam Chan, the Australian evangelist, we have three layers. An interest layer, a values layer, and a world views layer. In our interest layer, that's our small talk, that's our chit-chat, we talk about the weather and things like that, and traffic maybe. Our values layer is where we kind of move into things we value. So you may say that you prefer the Cowboys over the Broncos, or now the Dolphins over the Broncos, everybody over the Broncos, or maybe tea over coffee. We get a little bit deeper, we share the things we value. And then there's our worldview layer, where we discuss how we see life, the things that inform our decisions, whether God exists or doesn't exist, what life is like after death, our view of humans and nature. Uh, these things, these worldviews inform our values and our interests and, and so forth. Uh, and it's our job as people being on mission, journeying with people towards a spiritual belief, is to kind of lovingly nudge our way through these layers. And a great way to do that is through hospitality. Because when we eat and drink with people, we typically don't just sit there and stare in silence, do we? No, we engage, we connect, we look people in the eye, which I'm awkwardly doing right now to a few of you. We engage, we, we're there, we build relationship. Uh, and so Sam Chan uses this as an idea of hospitality, and he does this. He, he calls this idea coffee, dinner, gospel. In his context, Sam Chan's context, is professional offices in Sydney. And what he'll do in his office, he'll go up and buy someone a coffee. And he'll give them a coffee and say, I'm going to get a coffee, here's a coffee, I'm happy to shout you. And when you buy someone a coffee, right, you kind of feel awkward enough that you have to have a small talk. And so he uses that awkwardness and that social interaction to build a relationship. It's here that he kind of talks about interest layers. He talks about that kind of stuff. And then after doing this a few times, being that generous, nice, loving, good person, having a small talk, he then throw an invite out for dinner or something like that where you can have a longer conversation, get in deeper and nudge the way through these layers. For, for me, as a young parent, it is often playground dinner gospel. I find that coffee on the Sunshine Coast, and maybe you're different from me, often goes for like an hour or two. I don't know about these quick coffees. It's a long conversation. Uh, whereas playgrounds, mate, you can invite a kid and their family to a playground, to the parents, obviously, to the playground. Invite a family to the playground, you can chat with them for a few minutes, and it's kind of offhanded. You're kind of focused at the playground. You're not having to look awkwardly in each other's eyes and things like that, and you can work on the interest layer conversation. From then, it's really easy to invite someone back to your place. Oh, we're having a barbecue this afternoon. You can come along. You can build those relationships. You can nudge through through hospitality, being loving and kind through hospitality. For you at your work, it might simply be snack dinner gospel, buying a Mars bar, handing to them, hey, have a two-minute chat, build the relationship and over time. It's really quite simple because it's actually how we make friends, but it's so good and it works so well because we're able to nudge our way through the layers. We need to do be people who are hospitable. But while we're doing this, we also need to not forget the other people in this room, our Christian brothers and sisters. And that's why tea is for together. Rarely do we find in the New Testament time when people are out on mission by themselves. There, there is so much benefit of being together when on mission. I'm going to share two reasons uh, this morning. The first is from Proverbs 27:17. Iron sharpens iron, and one man sharpens another. When we work together with people on mission, we are strengthened by their gifts and talents and what they bring to the table. I see this in my own friends. In my friend group, we, 
we're an eclectic bunch, but some of us are really good at first-time conversations. They're great at that initial contact. They'll see anybody and can talk to them about anything and hang on conversation. Some of us are better long-term friends. We can, we're not so good at the first conversations, but we're good later on after a few times, and we stick to it. Other people are just the, I don't know, community builders, right? They can just somehow bring 40 people to a room, and they all know, and everybody's smiling and happy. We use this as our friends to love people well, and we should be doing that as a church, together, knowing our strengths and weaknesses and actually using them, getting someone to go talk to that person, and I'll come in and, and chat to them later on or things like that. Uh, it's great when we are doing this together. The second benefit of doing things together is whether we like it or not, is our opinions are actually informed by other people. Who here agrees with me, that, with me that water boils at 100 degrees Celsius? Anybody? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, who here has actually tested that for themselves? Yeah, well, there we go. I have, and it did not work, <laughs> because water boils at 100 degrees Celsius right in the perfect kind of lab conditions and elevations and all that kind of stuff. But we accept facts, though, because people have told us. We don't often navigate and investigate every single fact claim. Uh, and because of this reality, it makes sense to do mission together with other people. Because someone met me and I said, hey, I believe in Jesus and Jesus resurrected from the dead. I believe that is true. They may go to me, oh, that's great to hear, but you're a pastor, you're paid to say that. And I may go, oh, yeah, probably am, I suppose, but it's still true. But if they met my mate uh, Evan and he told them that Christianity is true, and now my mate Evan, he didn't actually grow up in a Christian family. He doesn't have that background. He's actually had a bit of an interesting, wild background. And so if he told them that he goes to church and believes Christianity is true, that adds a little bit more weight to the credibility of my claim. Along with that, if I told them, uh, if they met my friend Julie, now Julie is a scientist, and Julie loves facts and things like that. So now they've met me and my mate Evan, who's a tradie, and so he's just a normal bloke, and then scientist as well, uh, with all these facts and things like that. We add extra credibility by the more people we meet, and it adds more weight to the argument. This is why in our court system, we like having more than one witness, yeah? It helps inform people's opinions. It helps add credibility. And this is why it's such a benefit to do mission together. So, what that could mean for us as Christians is actually getting together as our friends, and maybe coming up with a bit of a list of the people in our lives who don't know who Jesus is. And together, looking at how we can love them well through hospitality and nudge our way through the layers and working off each other's weaknesses and strengths to share the gospel with them and care and bless them greatly. L is for listen. I is for integrity. G is for gospel. H is for hospitality. And T is for together. Those are some very simple, ordinary habits that I think can strengthen us in our journey to be people who share our faith and live on mission. You know, sometimes in Australia, uh, when things happen with the royal family, we can kind of feel really far away from it, can't we? It, uh, it doesn't really feel like it affects us much. When May 6th will come around, a coronation day for King Charles III, many of us probably won't know, won't care, and we'll find out a couple of months later about it. Some of you probably have only heard about it for the first time now today. It's because we kind of feel so far away from the United Kingdom, doesn't it? We feel so separate. But for us, on Easter Sunday, the day of our king's coronation, while long ago and seemingly far away as well, that has changed everything. And it really still has for us today. I guess what I'm saying is, whether you follow along with the royal family or not, 
Don't forget the true royal, King Jesus. He is a sending king, a king who is on mission. And it's on a mission which is as old as the earth itself. He's on a mission to transform the world through disciple-making. And because of this, you are on mission too, and you can be on mission. But the question is, will you be? Thank you for listening to this podcast from Life Centre Church, located on the Sunshine Coast. We exist to make, mature and multiply disciples and communities that depend upon, declare and display the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of life. If you would like more information about us, please visit lifecenterchurch.com.au. We provide our podcasts free of charge. Please feel free to download the content and share it with others. But please do not edit or alter the content in any way without the written permission from the leadership of LCC.